You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. Baptisms happen in all sorts of places, in baptismal fonts, in built-in pools, in sanctuaries like this one, in rivers, in lakes, even in swimming pools. And Christians baptize in different ways, by dunking, or immersion, the more proper word, pouring or sprinkling. One may be dunked three times even in some traditions, sometimes backwards or forwards. Pouring or sprinkling may be done once or in a series of three as a sign of the Trinity. Some Christians practice infant baptism, others believers baptism. Do you have memories of your baptism? I was baptized in an American Baptist church as a child, and our baptismal pool was behind the choir loft, way up there on the second floor level. And I remember tentatively making my way down the steps, which were hidden from the view of the congregation, into the pool. And our pastor, Reverend Bean, reached out his hand to help me into the center of the pool because the water was up to my chin. And there was a strategically placed cinder block in the middle of the pool, which I found with my toes, took a while, and stood on as he recited the baptismal liturgy before putting his white handkerchief over my nose and mouth and leaning me back under the water. Now, we had practiced this without water, and when I came up, my feet slipped off the cinder block, (laughs) which in my excitement I could not find again, and so I half bounced, half floated my way back to the stairs to the changing room that was behind the pipe organs. Our baptismal stories may have common themes. Perhaps you, the water came up to your nose too when you were baptized. Maybe there are heartwarming details that are particular to your experience or your tradition alone. And unfortunately, baptism practices have long been a point of contention in the church, haven't they? We argue over which practices we should follow as if the method was the most important aspect of baptism. Disciples, thankfully, have evolved over time in our theological reflections on baptism. And while believers' baptism by immersion had been the predominant practice of our founders, Alexander Hamilton and Campbell, not Hamilton, (laughs) and Barton Stone, 
Barton Stone, in particular, refused to make the mode of one's baptism a test for either fellowship within the church or communion. In the 1980s, as we participated more in ecumenical theological work and discussion, particularly with the Faith and Order Commission and its later work on baptism, Eucharist, and ministry, disciples started to adjust the way we thought about baptism. We continued those conversations with the Council on Christian Unity, and disciples began to develop what was called at the time, quote, an emerging theology of baptism among disciples. It was, in the end, our commitment to ecumenism, which led us to an expanded understanding of baptism that recognized the rich variety of baptismal practices within the larger Christian tradition. As the Commission on Theology of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ wrote in its 1986 report to the General Assembly, a word to the church on baptism, that's so disciples, it's not the word, it's a word, They put it this way, quote, in baptism, we are identified with the church local and global, past and future. From our baptism, Christians grow through transformation of loyalties into citizenship of God's kingdom. Or, as the preamble to the design of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ puts it, quote, through baptism into Christ, we enter into newness of life and are made one with the whole people of God. So with that background on baptism, I invite us to turn to our gospel passage for today, the baptism of our Lord Sunday. We're now returning to the gospel for this Christian year, the gospel of Mark. And the reason we do that is because Mark has no birth narratives which makes it a very difficult gospel text for Advent and Christmas. Unlike Luke's gospel, Mark has no stories of angel annunciations to a stunned Zachariah in the temple or to a young Mary. There are no journeys to Bethlehem. There are no shepherds tending their flock. There are no presentations in the temple. And unlike Matthew's gospel, there are no angels that appear in a dream to Joseph. There are no wise men from the east on Epiphany. There are no stars in the sky. There's no slaughter of children in Bethlehem. There's no fleeing of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to Egypt. There's no return to Nazareth once Herod had died. Instead, Mark's gospel gets right to the point. Drawing on the prophet Isaiah with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And here in the first chapter of Mark's gospel, we meet a full-grown adult, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, sporting camel's hair and a leather belt and eating locusts and wild honey. Preaching, Mark tells us, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin to the crowds who were coming out to the wilderness to hear him. And the crowds were there, Mark says, 
There were people from the whole Judean countryside there listening to this strange preacher in the wilderness, and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, which may be a slight exaggeration on Mark's part. John the Baptist is preaching a baptism of repentance. And the people respond enthusiastically. Mark skips over any encounter with Jesus beforehand. We don't have John the Baptist having a conversation with Jesus. There's no chit-chat. There's no introductions. There's no theological debates like we find in Matthew's gospel. Just the statement, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the River Jordan. Which may lead to us to ask, as we reflect on our own baptism, what does Jesus' baptism mean? After all, it's unique from ours in some ways, right? This is John's gig, after all. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He says the one to come after him will have a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In ancient Jewish traditions, there are rituals of water purification, especially developing around this time. Archaeologists have uncovered ritual bathing pools from the period, and we know that the ritual of washing hands before meals was a religious practice. And when John preaches of repentance, he's speaking not only of contrition of sin, but of a change of heart, a change of mind, a change in direction for all those people who have found themselves at the river's edge. Mark then adds just a little detail to Jesus' baptism writing, and just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him, and a voice came from the heavens you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Clarence Jordan in his Cotton Patch Gospels puts it this way, you are my boy, Jesus, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> it's a way of saying, this one here, this one's mine, right? In an otherworldly voice in the gospel, we hear echoes of the prophet Isaiah, where God says, I have called you by name. You are mine. You see, Jesus' baptism marks a turn in his ministry. He is no longer an anonymous carpenter from Nazareth, the son of Joseph and Mary. He has been marked. He has been claimed by God, and we see him here, in effect, taking up the mantle of a prophet, proclaiming the good news that the realm of God has come near to the people. In Mark's gospel, you see the spotlight is not so much on the baptism as it is on God's action in that moment. God is at work, Mark is telling us, as the Spirit descends and as God lays claim to this man, Jesus, as beloved. If you take a look at the art on our bulletin cover, it is a reflection on the moment of baptism by Lauren Wright Pittman. 
She entitled this image, Beloved. And the artist imagines that this is the moment in which Jesus is submerged in the river, just before he comes out of the water and hears the word of blessing, you are my beloved. And so in her image, we see Jesus both suspended and held up by the waters of baptism. And there's this calm underneath the surface of the water that surrounds him. And up at the top of the surface, it seems dark and choppy. And then you see the fish that are around his halo, which begs the question, is it in recognition of the light of God's belovedness in this person of Jesus? Is it an additional blessing from creation itself? Or is it a recognition of Jesus' own creatureliness? And then we also see the light that reaches down through the surface, falling onto Jesus. And Jesus himself is reaching up. Is he reaching up in anticipation, in acceptance, in faith? In her reflection on the artwork, Lauren Wright Pittman writes, This is what trusting your belovedness feels like. Muscles and bones relieved of gravity's burden, serenity, weightlessness, oneness with creation, and the warmth of God's love permeated, permeating every cell of your body and every corner of your soul. I think there's beautiful freedom in this image. Jesus being held up by the waters of his baptism, enveloped by the light of God's blessing. It helps us understand, I think, that at the core, the power of baptism is not dependent on us. Baptism is a God thing. Those parts of the Christian tradition which practice infant baptism underscore this reality that baptism is God's unconditional love poured out upon us regardless of our status, of our experiences, or of any action of our own. The great Baptist preacher William Sloan Coffin once wrote of baptism reminding us of the grace that we experience in baptism when he wrote, baptism symbolizes the fact that God gives us a name so that we don't have to make a name for ourselves. It is in baptism that we too hear the voice of God saying, you are my son, my daughter, you are my child, you are my beloved. Many of us spend much of our lives trying to prove we are worthy of love. Struggling to prove that somehow we are good enough for God's love or for another person's love. We think maybe if we're just clever enough or pretty enough, talented or successful enough, competent enough, kind enough, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Then we might, we might just be worthy of love. But in our baptism, God is at work embracing us, and through the waters of baptism, it's God who declares us 
beloved. Not because of anything we've done or accomplished or said or believed, but because of who God is. In particular, we are named beloved, you and I, each one of us, as our baptism symbolizes God's call on our lives and God's blessings on us. We are named beloved. And in the mystery of God's grace, that belovedness is not for us alone. It binds us together through the name of Jesus to be formed as the beloved community, as the body of Christ. Baptism is not for us alone, you see. It is an entry into that radical inclusion of the kingdom of God, which was foundational in Jesus' own life and ministry. It is no easy thing to live as the beloved of God, to know deep in your being that God's love is not conditional on our actions, to know through and through that you are the beloved of God no matter what you might have done or thought or said, to let go of the misplaced belief that our identity must be earned or, and instead to just rest in the affirmation of God's love for you. As Paul Tillich urged us, we must have the courage to accept acceptance. It is the way of deep spirituality, of living into this understanding of ourselves as God's beloved, as we find ourselves embraced by God's love, then we are free to discover what real freedom is. A freedom not tied to our successes or our failures. A freedom not dependent upon our acceptance by others. A freedom found in the knowledge that our entire lives have been enveloped completely by the love of God. And it's as this knowledge slowly sinks into our bones, we learn to see the belovedness of others around us too. And we begin to help others embrace that belovedness for themselves. It is a Roman Catholic tradition as one walks into a worship space to dip one's fingers into the waters of a baptismal font to make the sign of the cross as a reminder of a worshiper's baptism. I love this practice, just want you to know. I have a small baptismal sconce in my office just inside this door. And I have one at the back door of my house as reminders of the love of God which claims me, which has a claim on each one of us. Our baptism teaches us who we are. It's where we begin to learn how much we're loved as one sign of the Spirit's empowering presence in our lives. Baptism is this one-time event that takes a lifetime to complete. Martin Luther called this lifelong process living wet. (laughs) We live our lives in constant memory of our baptism. We are living wet. (laughs) 
Luther, like so many of us at times, felt overwhelming feelings of unworthiness and despair. It's said that he kept an inscription above his desk which read, Remember, you have been baptized. And at times, he writes that he would touch his own forehead and say to himself, Remember, you have been baptized. Remember, you are beloved. Such ritual reminders help shape our identity, I think. When the world beats down on us, we can choose to remember that we have been baptized. In the morning, when you wash your face and splash that water on your face, you can say to yourself, remember, I have been baptized. We've reached the end of a time when we've been considering the question, how does a weary world rejoice? And the final poem in our devotional book explores an answer to that question. We trust our belovedness. Sarah Speed begins her poem writing, Trust your belovedness. Let it be a protest, an act of resistance, a song of celebration. And then she ends her poem this way. Remember creation. Remember how it was good, so very good. And then let that truth hum through your veins. Sing it so loud that it drowns out the weariness of the world. For the bravest thing we can ever do is trust that we belong here. In some Christian traditions, such as Roman Catholic and Lutheran churches, there's a practice of remembering one's baptismal anniversary. The anniversary is published in bulletins and newsletters celebrated at home, serve as a regular reminder of that moment that God claimed us as beloved. I find that practice beautiful. I wish disciples would adopt it. My 50th baptismal anniversary was this past year, November 25th. It always falls around Thanksgiving, which is both wonderfully appropriate and also easy to remember. Do you know the date of your baptism? Are there any traditions, rituals that you follow to keep the meaning of your baptism alive in your life today? I believe that the waters of baptism surround us even now long after the moment of our baptism, and we can make that moment come alive every day. It's as simple as each time you wash your hands, take a shower, step out of your house into the rain. Those are opportunities to claim the truth of our baptism, to say to ourselves, remember that you have been baptized. Remember that God calls you by name. Remember that you are beloved. You are dearly beloved. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. 
Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.